0: The main purpose of David Hume's section 10 of his inquiry concerning human understanding on miracles is to argue that miracles don't actually happen and that the testimony that is provided for all sorts of miracles throughout history and by all sorts of people across the earth is not going to establish that miracles have actually taken place or even that they will take place in the future at the very end he says this also applies to prophecy and so it's got a pretty wide scope and at the end of the first section of it he tells us that the plain consequence is and it's a general maxim that no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish he actually concludes and he says you know if the falsehood of a person's testimony would be more miraculous than the event they relates, then, and not till then, can he pretend to command my belief or opinion? Now, that's setting the bar incredibly high. And then Hume, at the beginning of part two of section 10, is going to say, in the foregoing reasoning, we may have supposed that the testimony upon which a miracle is founded may possibly amount to an entire proof and that the falsehood of that testimony would be a real prodigy, but it's easy to show we have been a great deal too liberal in our concession and that there was never a miraculous event established on so full an evidence, the evidence of testimony. So he's saying, I gave you this general maxim or principle. It's not actually going to apply. And I went too far with that. Now I'm going to bring out the big guns and give you arguments for why there aren't any miracles that have ever been established on the basis of any testimony whatsoever. And this is kind of a hodgepodge of arguments. They're, you know, quite interesting they're more or less independent of each other although they do stray into each other's fields to some degree and where he's going to conclude is also kind of an interesting place as well so the first thing is he's numbering these off and he quits numbering after a while he says first there is not found in all history any miracle attested by a sufficient number of men of such unquestioned good sense education and learning so as to secure us against all delusion in themselves of such undoubted integrity as to place them beyond all suspicion of any design to deceive others of such credit and reputation in the eyes of mankind as to have a great deal to lose in case of their being detected in any falsehood And at the same time, attesting facts performed in such a public manner and in so celebrated a part of the world as to render the detection unavoidable, all of which are requisite to give us a full assurance in the testimony of men. So he's saying, listen, people can talk about miracles. We never get a report that is coming from sufficiently credible witnesses who are all in agreement with each other. We know that they're not going to lie to us or anything like that. So, you know, what this means is that any miracle that is attested, there's, in Hume's view, something that we can pick at. We could question, as he says, the veracity, right? We could question the good sense, the education, the learning. We could question the integrity. We could question whether they have bad motives or anything like that. We can always bring up that with respect to any particular miracle. Now, it's interesting because a little bit later on in the section, he's going to bring up some people who he says, well, you know, if anybody's going to believe it's got to be these guys here. But we'll get to that in a minute. The second one is. Much more interesting, I think. He says, We may observe in human nature a principle which, if we examine it, will be found to diminish the assurance we might have from human testimony in any kind of prodigy, anything that's really strange, that is outside of the ordinary scope so this would include not just the miraculous but also the marvelous perhaps he says the maxim by which we commonly conduct ourselves in our reasoning right so how we actually think through things is that the objects of which we have no experience resemble those of which we have so we judge things that we don't actually have experience of by what we do know and this could be ancient history. Hume earlier in the treaty says, well, you know, we know how British people and French people are, so we know how Greeks and Romans back in antiquity are. A rather somewhat dubious claim, but nonetheless, he goes on and he says, what we have found to be the most usual is always the most probable. So where there is an opposition of arguments, we should give preference to those that are founded on the greatest number of past observations or best confirmed, we could say, by experience. So what can we do with this? Now, this is where it takes an interesting turn. Hume is going to say, how do people actually behave? What's our experience of that? So he's going to talk about a number of different passions, things that people are affected by. And the first one that he brings up, so he's observing this in his own time and saying, well, if it's happening in our time, it must be happening every other time. The passion of surprise and wonder arising from miracles being an agreeable emotion gives a sensible tendency towards the belief of those events from which it is derived. And he says, this goes so far that even those who cannot enjoy the pleasure immediately, who are not seeing like the miraculous or marvelous event Love to hear about it. Who's that really the case? And he gives all sorts of funny examples of this a little bit later on. He says the many instances of forged miracles and prophecies and supernatural events. People like this kind of stuff. And he says, this is our natural way of thinking, even with regard to common, incredible events. And now this is kind of interesting to think about. Is this something that happens in our own time? He says, for instance, there's no kind of report which arises so easily and spreads so quickly, especially in country places and provincial towns as those concerning marriages, insofar that two young persons of equal condition never see each other twice, but the whole neighborhood immediately join them together. The pleasure of telling a piece of news so interesting of propagating it and of being the first reporters of it spreads the intelligence, the juiciness, you might say, of the gossip. And you might say, well, country towns in Hume's time Maybe that's what was going on. I don't know about our present day. Well, think about the phenomenon of shipping with fictional characters. Ooh, I wanna see these two get together. When are they finally going to, as we say, get a room or get it on? (laughs) They're not gonna get married, but they're going to fall in love. They're gonna kiss, they're gonna have sex, right? I mean, maybe humans really onto something there. Why do people get so interested in that? Well, because of this surprise or wonder and the agreeableness of the passion. There's another one he talks about, the spirit of religion. right? So this is an interesting one as well. He says a religionist may be an enthusiast. And now an enthusiast for Hume means somebody who gives way to a kind of fanaticism that really comes from their feelings. And he says a religionist may imagine he sees what has no reality. He may know his narrative to be false and yet persevere in it with the best intentions of the world for the sake of promoting so holy a cause. Or it could be vanity as well right people like to be the one who's in the know who gets to tell us about the cool stuff that's going on or another one self-interest this is a big one as well he says self-interest with equal force may be operating on human beings. So all of these different passions can lead people to believe things that they really have no good basis for believing because they it makes them feel good to believe it, or they want to believe it, or it's going to be good for them to believe it. So that is this Thing That he's saying, well, we see this. This is part of our experience. So why wouldn't that be the case for testimonies of miracles? So that's the second argument. The third argument that he gives a little bit later on, he says, it forms a strong presumption against all supernatural and miraculous relations that they are observed chiefly to abound where among ignorant and barbarous nations or if a civilized people has given admission to any of them that people will have been found to have received them from ignorant and barbarous ancestors who transmitted them with that inviolable sanction and authority which always attend received opinion so what, what is he saying there you know when a miracle happens it's out in the boonies among those dumb people who aren't smart enough to actually like examine what's going on. And he uses as his primary case here, this, false prophet Alexander he's getting the story from Lucian of Samsona and you know we should actually pause here for a minute how do we know that Lucian who's the only source reporting this is actually a reliable witness given the fact that Lucian himself is prone to talking about miracles and prodigies and things like that he's actually a satirist he's got an interest in presenting things in kind of crazy ways right so put that aside for a moment Where is this false prophet in Paphlagonia, you know, where the people, as Lucian tells us, are extremely ignorant and stupid. If Hume says he'd been in Athens, they would have figured him out right away. And maybe, maybe so right? Maybe there's something to that. And so we should be skeptical of any sort of reports that are coming from people that we consider to be ignorant or barbarous, whether they're in the present or in the past. And he's got this really great line here where he says, you know, it's strange, a judicious reader is apt to say on the perusal of these wonderful historians, that such prodigious events never happen in our day. And then Hume says, no, there's nothing strange about that. People lie. People lie in the present. People lied in the past. Again, we're working off of our experience of human beings. Going on to the fourth, this gets a little bit tricky and convoluted in the text. He says, I may add as a fourth reason, which diminishes the authority of prodigies, that there's no testimony for any even those which have not been expressly detected that is not opposed by an infinite number of witnesses so that not only the miracle destroys the credit of testimony, but the testimony destroys itself. Now, how does this work? Why would a miracle destroy the testimony? So, Where Hume is going with this is saying, you got to look at miracles in relation to other reported miracles, and they're usually used as part of what he calls a system of religion. And he's going to mention a number of these Um, ancient Rome, Turkey, meaning uh, Islam, Siam, Thailand, right? So Buddhism, China, probably Confucianism is what he has in mind. He also talks a little bit later about ancient Greek religion and Roman Catholic religion. And he says that the miracles that each of these are reporting and then basing their religion upon, they contradict each other. So, you know, if we only consider one of them by itself without thinking about the rest, then we could be like, well, I don't know, maybe there's something to that. But if we think about things in what we could call a comparative religion perspective, or world religions is often how we talk about it, we could be like, well... You know, if this is the case over here, this over here kind of contradicts it. And so it destroys the credibility, you could say, of all of them. He says, every miracle pretended to have been wrought in any of these religions, as its direct scope is to establish the particular system to which it's attributed, so has it the same force to overthrow every other system. They can't all be right. In destroying a rival system, though, it destroys the credit of those miracles on which that system was established. So that all the prodigies of different religions are to be regarded as contrary facts and the evidences of these prodigies, whether weak or strong, as opposite to each other. And these are the numbered arguments, you know, one through four that he's going to give. He is going to talk about some other stuff for uh, some other pages. And among these, going back to number one, Well, what if we do in fact have credible witnesses. He talks about Tacitus and Vespasian, who's supposed to have cured a blind man in Alexandria by means of his spittle. Vespasian was not into miraculous stuff. He doesn't like people pretending to be gods and stuff like that. And then we get the Cardinal de Retz in Spain, who himself doesn't buy into miracles and tends to be skeptical of it himself. And then we get this Abbe Paris, a Jansenist, and even the Jesuits can't confute him. And so, So what does Hume say in those cases? Well, and so here's where we have a different kind of argument. We still shouldn't buy into these miracles. Why not? He says, What have we to oppose to a cloud of witnesses, but the absolute impossibility or miraculous nature of the events which they relate. This, he says, in the eyes of all reasonable people will alone be regarded as a sufficient refutation. So even if these other things don't apply, we can still say, yeah, miracles just don't happen. I mean, by definition, the miraculous can't actually be the case. And he, you know, he goes on and says, the wise lend a very academic faith to every report which favors The passion of the reported, you know, some good other ideas in here. And then he says, listen, here's the bottom line. On the whole, then, it appears no test, none whatsoever, for any kind of miracle has ever amounted to a probability, let alone a proof. And then, even supposing it amounted to a proof, it would be opposed by another proof derived from the very nature of the fact, which it would endeavor to establish. It is experience only, which gives authority to human testimony. And it's the same experience, which assures us of the laws of nature. So we got to pick between the two laws of nature, which we have proofs for miracles, which it'd be cool if they were true, but contradict the laws of nature. We're going to have to take the laws of nature, ultimately, and say there isn't any probability, let alone proof of miracles. Now, he concludes with something kind of interesting towards the end, talking about Christianity. And we can say, does Hume actually believe this or not? And the answer is... I mean, if you look at his other discussions of religion, particularly in posthumously published works, Hume does not think that Christianity is a true system of doctrine or anything like that. But he's hedging his bets here. He says, our holy religion, meaning Christianity, meaning Protestant Christianity, is founded on faith not reason, and it is a sure method of exposing it to be put to such a trial as it is by no means fitted To endure, And then he says, I mean, think about the miracles that are narrated in scripture, just the ones in the first five books of the Bible. You know, here we have a book presented to us by a barbarous and ignorant people, right? So that's one of the things he's brought up in all probability, long after the facts, which it relates corroborated by no concurring testimony, resembling fabulous accounts, which every nation gives of its origin. Reading this book, we find it full of prodigies and miracles. And he gives you a whole bunch of examples. examples. And then he says, you know, I desire anyone to lay his hand on his heart and after a serious consideration, declare whether he thinks the falsehood of such a book supported by such a testimony would be more extraordinary and miraculous than all the miracles it relates. Now, Hume is Being a little bit duplicitous here, he actually does think that the Bible is not a reliable source. But he's saying, oh, you know, wouldn't it be extraordinary for it to be false? And, you know, he goes on and he says that mere reason is insufficient to convince us of its veracity. Whoever's moved by faith to assent to it is conscious. Now notice what else he says of a continued miracle in his own person, which subverts all the principles of his understanding and gives him a determination to believe what is most contrary to custom and experience. That sounds as if Hume is endorsing a kind of fideism. He's actually presenting it so that he can say in his heart of hearts, yeah, don't buy into that. The miracles that are supposed to be uh, the basis of the Christian religion, Hume thinks that they're no more likely or even possible than those of other religions. And all of this logic would apply to them equally. So Hume is going to reject, for all of these reasons, any sort of miracle being probable or being proved by testimony of witnesses or, even worse, of people following after them and assembling these stories. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page.